the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Now, this was the heart of the charge and the accusation leveled against Paul. Impulsive and sinfully motivated. They said, in effect, to him, Paul, we're really not important to you, are we? You haven't visited us like you said you would. You only care about yourself. We're not important to you. Otherwise, you wouldn't be so flippant and and flippant in your decision-making about visiting us. So that's what's going on here. Welcome to Verse by Verse. I'm Peter Silseth, and we're glad to be with you today. Our teacher, Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel, is leading us in a series of studies concerning the Apostle Paul's defense of his integrity. Lakeside is located in Clearwater, Florida, and Pastor Steve has been serving there for more than 26 years. Verse by Verse Ministries is glad to be able to make his messages more widely available through this radio station. Have you ever been misunderstood? I'm sure you have. And it hurts, doesn't it? Paul was misunderstood by many of the folks in the Corinthian church, and you can tell by his tone here in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians that it hurt. He was disappointed, and I think justifiably angry, that they would doubt his love for them when they didn't even know all the facts. In fact, they ignored what they did know about Paul's love and integrity while accepting accusations that were pure speculation with no supporting evidence. So if you have your Bible handy, turn to verse 23. Let's see how Paul defended his integrity. Here is Pastor Steve. Let's open our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We want to continue our study of 2 Corinthians and actually move into chapter 2, though there is a chapter division in your Bibles, it's really the same progressive thought, and uh, we want to take it as such. Chapter 1, beginning at verse 23, Paul writes, But I call God as witness to my soul, that to spare you I did not come again to Corinth, not that we lorded over your faith, but are workers with you for your joy, for in your faith you are standing firm. But I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. For if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? This is the very thing I wrote you, so that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. These uh, these verses, in fact, this whole passage is really about being misunderstood and Paul's defense of that misunderstanding. But being misunderstood can be extremely painful, as we all know. It always hurts to have people think negatively of us, but it especially stings when their negative thoughts are based on a misunderstanding that uh, you can't seem to clarify or it's hard, if not impossible, to clear up. One of the most memorable illustrations of being misunderstood that I've ever read comes from an old Chuck Swindoll book 
called Three Steps Forward and Two Steps Back. And here's, here's what Chuck writes about a situation with some, which there was some misunderstanding. He says, a close friend of mine has an acquaintance in Texas who is a young attorney. He's a member of a sizable law firm run by a rather traditional kind of boss who enjoys a special kind of ritual at Thanksgiving time. Every year, this young attorney participates in the ritual because it means so much to his employer. On the large walnut table in the boardroom of the office suite sits a row of turkeys, one for each member in the firm. It isn't just a matter of if you want it, you can have it. If you don't, you can leave it. The members go through some rather involved protocol. Each man stands back from the table, looks at his turkey. When his turn comes, he steps forward, picks up the bird, announcing how grateful he is to work for the firm and how thankful he is for the turkey this Thanksgiving. This young attorney is single, he lives alone, and he has absolutely no use for a huge turkey. He has no idea of how to fix it, and even if it were properly prepared, he has no use for all of its meat. But because it is expected of him, he takes a turkey every year. One year, his close friends in the law firm replaced his turkey with one made of paper mache. They weighted it with lead to make it feel genuine and attached a real turkey neck and tail to make it look just like a real turkey, but it was a bogus bird through and through. On the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, everyone gathered in the boardroom. When it came his turn, this young man stepped up, picked up the large bird, and announced his gratitude for the job and for the turkey. Later that afternoon, he got on the bus to go home, and with the big turkey on his lap, he wondered what in the world he would do with it. A little further down the bus line, a rather run-down, discouraged-looking man got on. The only vacant seat on the bus was the one next to our young attorney friend. And you can probably guess where this is going. He sat down and he began to talk about the holiday. The lawyer learned that the stranger had spent the entire day job hunting with no luck, that he had a large family, and that he was wondering what he would do about Thanksgiving tomorrow. The attorney was struck with a brilliant idea. This is my day for a good turn. I'll give him my turkey. Then he had a second thought. This man is not a freeloader. He's no bum. It would probably injure his pride for me to give it to him, so I'll sell it to him. He asked the man, how much money do you have? Oh, a couple of dollars and a few cents, the man answered. The attorney said, I would like to sell you this turkey, and he placed it on the man's lap. Sold. The stranger handed over the two dollars and whatever coins he had. He was moved to tears. I'll, I'll bet he was, you know, moved to tears. He's going to really cry later, but he's moved to tears, thrilled to death that his family would have a turkey for Thanksgiving. He got off the bus, waved goodbye to the attorney. God bless you. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving. I'll never forget you. And I would venture to say he never forgot this man. The bus pulled away from the curb as both men smiled. Can, now, Swindoll writes, can you picture this man going home announcing as he got inside the front door, kids, you'll never believe what a nice man I met today. Come, look here, look what I have. Then he'd lay the thing down, I'm sure, on the kitchen table, and he would begin to unwrap the brown uh, paper, only to find this fake glob of paper and lead weights with only a real neck and a real tail. What the man probably said, Simon and Schuster couldn't even publish. The next Monday, the attorney went to work. His friends were dying to know about the turkey. 
You cannot imagine their chagrin when they heard the story of what happened. I understand through my friend that they all got on the bus every day that week looking in vain for a man who, as far as I know to this day, still entertains a misunderstanding about a guy who innocently sold him a fake turkey for a couple of bucks and a few cents. And then he writes, now that's misunderstanding. You know, um, it is memorable. I have, I have actually never forgotten that as one of the humorous stories that we read from Chuck Swindoll, but it is one thing to have a misunderstanding about a turkey. It is a far more serious matter to be misunderstood when it comes to spiritual and eternal matters. And that's what 2 Corinthians chapter 1 is about. The Apostle Paul, we know this from our previous studies in 2 Corinthians, that uh, this church was spurred on by false, false teachers, false apostles, and their accusations towards Paul. They misunderstood him. They said he was insincere, he was fickle, he was unreliable. Why? Because he dared to change his plans to visit them. Now, we looked at that last week. He originally said, look, on my way to Macedonia, I'm going to stop uh, on there, and when I return, I'll, I'll stop from there and I'll visit you. So I'll give you a two-fold blessing. And that's what he said in verse 17. But he changed his mind. He changed his mind. Now, verse 17 tells us that specifically they accused him. It boiled down to two things. Number one, they said he made plans in a light manner. That's what verse 17 says. Therefore, I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? The word vacillating, as we saw last week, means light, to take it lightly. In other words, they said, Paul, you're impulsive. You're not serious about this. You haven't thought it through. Just whatever comes pops into your mind, you just said it. You said you'd come and visit us, but you're not going to do that, and so you're, you're light. They also said that he made decisions based on, uh, on fleshly motives. That's where they said, Paul said, told us in verse 17 that this was their accusation. What I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh? That is to say that they believe Paul made and changed his plans to suit his own selfish interests. That, that he was uh, just like an unregenerate, unsaved man who only does what he does if it serves his purposes. That's what they said. That's what they meant by fleshly. Uh, am I acting like somebody in the flesh? Like I'm not even acting like a Christian. I'm totally self-consumed. That's what they said. Now, this was the heart of the charge and the accusation leveled against Paul. Impulsive and sinfully motivated. They said, in effect to him, Paul, we're really not important to you, are we? You haven't visited us like you said you would. You only care about yourself. We're not important to you. Otherwise, you wouldn't be so flippant and, and flippant in your decision-making about visiting us. So that's what's going on here. And these charges of a lack of truthfulness, sincerity, concern for them is what Paul addresses in chapter 1. And the way he addresses this is to launch into a defense of his integrity. His integrity. As we've seen the last few weeks, Paul has given us, and, and we've looked at two of these, but we'll look at one more this morning, three qualities in his life that demonstrated his integrity. He didn't just say he had integrity, he demonstrated it, he proved it. We've already looked at two of these. We looked uh, two weeks ago at number one, he, uh, he demonstrated his integrity by the fact that uh, he was transparent in his behavior, and specifically his speech said in verses 12 and 13 that he was open, he was honest with them, there was no hidden agenda. He said his conscience testified to the fact that he was very clear with them. That's what it means 
in verse 12 when he says that the testimony of our conscience is this, that in holiness and godly sincerity, that godly sincerity is clarity, clearness, transparency. Paul said that's the way we behaved. We didn't tell you something and we meant something else. In verse 13, he said in our letters we were the same way. What we wrote to you, uh, there's nothing else there. You don't have to wonder if there's some deeper hidden message. It's just very clear. So Paul said he was transparent. Why would they think that he was dishonest and fickle and untrustworthy when they know that uh, as they look back on his uh, previous visits with them and his letters to them, that he was very transparent? Why should they think he's changed? That's his point. Secondly, he said that a man of integrity is characterized not only by transparency in speech, but also by his dedication to God and his truth. And we looked at that last week in verses 18 through 20. And basically what Paul is saying is, look, just as God is faithful to keep his word, so I've been faithful to keep my word. And the proof of God's faithfulness to you is that his promises to us have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Or they, if they have not been fulfilled yet, the ones that are remaining will be fulfilled. But there are so many that have been fulfilled based on what Jesus has done for us. God has been faithful. He has kept his word. And Paul is saying, I keep my word too, because the word that I brought to you when I initially came to Corinth was the gospel of Jesus Christ. I preach the truth to you. You know that I preach the truth to you because you said amen to the gospel. You embraced Jesus. That's why you're part of God's family. You said yes. Why, if I'm so committed to God's truth in telling you about Christ, why then would I be lying to you? You can't have it both ways. You cannot say that here's a man who brought us the truth, but in his own personal life, he has lied to us. It's, it doesn't make sense. It's nonsense. It's inconsistent. Paul said, I have proven to you by the way I brought what I said to you in bringing you the gospel of truth that I am a man of my word. I represent the faithful and the true witness. Now, it's important to understand that though these false apostles in the church joined in said that... Uh, that, that Paul was fickle and so forth. The real issue behind all of this, I don't think it has anything to do with the change of scheduling. That's what they said. I think it's really a smokescreen, as many accusations against men of God really are. They charged him with being fickle and untrustworthy only because they really wanted to undermine his ministry. They wanted to destroy his credibility. Why? Because they wanted to establish themselves as true apostles. Paul called them false apostles. But the only way they could establish themselves as apostles was by tearing down the ministry and credibility of, of Paul in the eyes of the Corinthians. So they said, look, he can't keep his word. He, he doesn't uh, keep his word about scheduling. He can't trust him about anything else. So they attempted to convince the church that not only couldn't Paul be trusted to tell them the truth, but he didn't care about them. He didn't care about them at all. Otherwise, if he cared about them, why hasn't he visited you like he said he would? So all of that is going on here. And therefore, beginning with verse 23, continuing all the way to chapter 2, verse 4, it's really one unit of thought, Paul presents the third quality of his life that demonstrated his integrity. And what he does here, he shows, they said, in essence, Paul doesn't care about us. He doesn't love us. Paul responded to that by saying, I want you to know my motivation in not visiting you. What was behind my, my lack of a visit was loving motives. That becomes the third quality of his life that demonstrated his integrity. Number one, it was transparency. Number two, it was dedication to God and his truth. But number three, and this is what we want to study this morning, 
The third quality of his life that demonstrated his integrity was his loving motives, his motivation of love. In these verses, Paul is going to really open his heart and, and give us a glimpse of his heart so that we understand what does a man of God, uh, what kind of motives does a man of God have? He'll reveal his heart to the Corinthians of deep love, deep passion, and compassion for them. And what he's going to do, and this is what we're studying this morning, in his love for them, he's going to, to share with them and us by way of, of application, how he expressed his love to them in three ways. These are three ways that a man of integrity expresses his love to people. These are the same ways, folks, that you and I are, are to express love to people, uh, not only in ministry, but in our family, our, our children, uh, our spouse, people we work with. If you're looking for a tangible way to get hold of how love demonstrates itself, here's, what, here's the way Paul demonstrated and expressed his love. So let's begin to look at this. Loving motives, but we're going to see how he expressed his love. The first way that Paul expressed his love to the Corinthians was in his concern for their spiritual welfare. His concern for their spiritual welfare. We open up by looking at verse 23. But I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you, I did not come again to Corinth. Now, up to this point in his defense of his integrity, Paul has, has simply denied that his change of plans had anything to do with fickleness or lack of, of trustworthiness. He has established the fact that his word can be trusted. Both his conscience and his preaching verified that. But you know what? He hasn't told them why he changed his plans. Do you realize that? Not once has he told them anything about why he changed his plans. He's just been telling them he's a man of integrity. The question still remains, yeah, then why haven't you visited us like you said you were planning to do that? And uh, Paul hasn't told them why until this verse. In this verse, he begins to share with them. Now, before we, we look at the reason he gives, I want you to notice the beginning of this verse. He actually takes an oath. He swears, not swearing in the sense of cursing, but swearing in the sense of taking an oath. He said, but I call God as witness to my soul. In other words, I call upon God to take my life if I'm not telling the truth. I call upon God to judge me if I'm not speaking the truth about the reason I haven't visited you, Corinthians, as originally planned. What Paul is doing is he wants them to know this is serious stuff. This is, this is a grave situation. Before he tells them why he hasn't visited them, he takes an oath. Now, we need to stop here and think about this. This is the second time I've mentioned an, an oath to you. I mentioned, I believe, last week. But we need to, to think about this because there are some Christians who feel very, very uncomfortable with taking oaths. Uh, there are some groups, some religious groups, that will not take an oath in a court of law. Years ago, the Anabaptists would not take uh, an oath in a court of, of law. And so we need to think about that. Um, why do we take oaths in, in the first place? Why does anyone take an oath? Well, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 16, tells us exactly why oaths are taken. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 16, the writer says this to these Jewish people. He said, For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. Why do people take oaths? When an individual takes an oath, he is appealing to a higher authority to prove that his words are valid and that they can be believed. 
In other words, it guarantees the truthfulness of his words. That's why the writer says it ends every dispute. You appeal to someone higher than yourself, usually it'd be God, and uh, that ought to end the dispute. No more question about it. Now, the reason people have a problem with oaths, some Christians, is because in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus had some very strong words to say against oaths. Let's look at Matthew chapter 5. And in verses 34 and 35, Jesus spoke against oaths. But I think that it's a, a misunderstood passage of Scripture, and I want to explain it to you. In fact, had Jesus not said this or had not been in the Bible, I don't think anybody would have a problem with oath-taking. But here's what Jesus said, verse 34 and then 35. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Now, this is troubling to people because Jesus, it looks like he says, take no oaths at all. But in context, not only here, but in the overall context of Scripture, that can't be what he meant. And let me tell you why. First of all, we have examples of, uh, of Jesus taking an oath before the high priest, just before his crucifixion. He took an oath. We also have an example in Hebrews 6, and I didn't read it to you, but in the context of our writer telling us that it guarantees the trustworthiness of someone's uh, words, it actually says that when he made a promise to Abraham, God himself swore by himself, for there's no one higher than him. To emphasize the truthfulness of his own word, God actually took an oath. The Apostle Paul, into the inspiration of Scripture, several times takes oath. So, in the overall context of Scripture, Jesus cannot be contradicting what other Scriptures say and what uh, these examples demonstrate for us. Also, in the context of Matthew chapter 5, it is the Sermon on the Mount in which Jesus is telling his disciples, do not act like the Pharisees who are hypocrites, who have this external righteousness, but internally, they're not righteous. You are to have internal godliness. They just do things for a show, for performance. And that's what he's talking about here. In context, he was condemning not all oath-taking, but rather the man-made hypocritical system that the Pharisees invented. They would use certain words while under an oath that actually they felt allowed them to lie, even though they were taking an oath. And here's, what they, here's how they reasoned. They said, look, it is only wrong to lie when you're taking an oath using God's name. So we won't use God's name. What we'll do is we'll, uh, we'll swear by heaven. We'll swear by earth. We'll swear by the city of Jerusalem. And they, and they came up with all other things. And Jesus just condemns that. You know what it'd be like today? It'd be like someone saying, look, I, I swear that I'm telling the truth. But you know what? Their fingers are crossed. So it's okay, because they had their fingers crossed. That's sort of the same mentality. I take this oath, but I can really lie. It doesn't, I don't have to tell the truth because I didn't take God's name and profane it. That's what Jesus is condemning. That's the point here. It's actually a shameful indictment of mankind's nature that oaths are even considered to be necessary. The Josephson Institute of Ethics conducts periodic surveys to measure our society's ethical values. The survey results are consistently disappointing. 
For example, in a survey of teenagers conducted in the year 2000, 92% of those surveyed said that they had lied to a parent at least once in the past 12 months about something significant. I wonder how many lied on the survey. But you know what? We don't need professional surveys to know that dishonesty is practically universal. Pastor-teacher Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida, will be back for the next verse-by-verse to continue his three-part message about the Apostle Paul's defense of his integrity. Pastor Steve has been ministering at Lakeside since 1981. Verse-by-verse ministries converts his messages into radio format so that more people can learn from his practical, expository, or verse-by-verse messages. Verse by Verse Ministries is a faith ministry supported by the prayers and gifts of listeners like you who have first been faithful to their own churches. Today's class is the start of a three-part message, the concluding message in a series from 2 Corinthians about integrity. If you would like to hear the entire message at one time, you can order an audio CD or a cassette tape. Just call us at 727 727- Four four one one seven one four. Leave your name and a number, and we will return your call during weekday office hours. That number again, 727-441-1714. If you would like to hear today's class again or catch the previous one, visit our website, versebyverseradio.org. We also offer a free podcasting service at the site. That's versebyverseradio.org. After Pastor Steve's helpful explanation as to why Paul took an oath here, we are still left with a question. Why did Paul change his plans? He said he would visit the Corinthians on his way to Jerusalem, and he didn't follow through. What happened? We will find out about that on the next Verse by Verse. I'm Peter Silseth. Hope to see you then. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.